Don't touch is perhaps one of the earliest memories we might have of being spoken to as a preschooler. Or perhaps as you went into a shop with your mother or father, look but don't touch. Now, it seems that since last year and the advent of COVID, we're in a whole new world, aren't we, of don't touch, as we've danced around each other and found different ways to greet each other or to share the peace, being much more conscious perhaps than uh, we might have been about washing our hands and perhaps wearing gloves and being careful not to spread infection or to expose ourselves to it. All good sense and primary health care. But I think we're also becoming aware of the side effects of, of what goes with that more stringent approach to hygiene. And we, of course, are at the moment being let off very lightly here and mustn't take it for granted. But we're hearing stories from other parts of the world of those who are feeling acutely touch-deprived, those who have now spent months in lockdown separated from family and friends, and particularly the elderly and those who live on their own may be feeling extremely touch-deprived, realising just how important it is for our physical and mental health to experience safe human touch. Uh, with Valentin's Valentine's Day today, there's all sorts of weird and wonderful articles that come up, and I found myself reading something yesterday, it was a slightly tongue-in-cheek article about how the dating lives of a generation of singles have been put on hold over this year, and it's put a whole new meaning into online dating, and dating via Zoom, and speed dating. Um, yeah, maybe it was a wee bit tongue-in-cheek, but yet we probably all know of couples and families who've been separated by the circumstances of the last year and perhaps finding themselves in different countries, often for months on end. Uh, my own newlywed niece and her husband, I was away last year at their wedding in India. They ended up separated for seven months last year in different countries. And it was a very convoluted process of engaging with the different countries' authorities uh, for them to get back together again, including eventually meeting in Dubai and coming into New Zealand that way. So for many, being out of touch, and just think of that phrase, and trying to get back in touch has taken on difficult new meaning. Our Gospel reading as we continue through Mark's first chapter shows Jesus in touch with those he ministers to in a way that would have shocked his first disciples and the first readers of the Gospel as well. Jesus is approached by a man with leprosy and that itself would have shocked Jesus' entourage. In the culture of Jesus' time, those with leprosy or a number of other skin diseases were all lumped together, and they lived in what we now call managed isolation. Although it was self-managed, or it was inflicted on them, really, in that those with leprosy were forced to live on the margins of towns and villages, and in religious terms, and according to the purity, impurity laws of Judaism, good laws that were put in place for public health in their time. Those with leprosy and diseases that at that time were considered contagious and with no cure were considered unclean and had to be separated off from those who were clean with no contact between them. 
And we well know that over the centuries and right up till modern times, this developed into leper colonies where few would venture. Lepers were the recipients of charity, of food left for them, but always at a distance. Some old churches in other parts of the world, and you may have seen them, still have lepers' windows, slits. There's an actual word for it, but I can't think what it is, so someone might tell me afterwards. It's just a slit where lepers could look in on the worship and observe, but not risk passing on what was then considered to be a very contagious disease to the worshippers inside. What a bittersweet provision that must have been. So it's in this context that the unnamed man in our story puts himself at risk and he comes to where Jesus is and approaches him and kneels before him. He begs for help and what poignant words we hear from him, if you choose, you can make me clean, how tentative that is. I wonder what does this man know about Jesus? What healings has he perhaps observed from a distance, from afar? We don't know, and yet he comes desperate, but in faith. And we read that Jesus is moved with pity or compassion, and that is the Jesus that we've come to know and love. But there's also um, a textual variant in some of those early Greek manuscripts that says Jesus was moved with anger. Isn't that interesting? Perhaps they're at a gut-level frustration at the havoc that disease and suffering wreak in the world. I was talking with someone here yesterday at the Working Bee about the feelings of frustration and powerlessness we feel when someone we know and love is struck, perhaps by terminal illness, at a young age. Or someone who dies suddenly far too young, Many of us have heard the, the extremely sad news that Mike and Patsy Hawke's daughter, Sarah, uh, has just died just a month after their son died. This is tragic. And we say, where is God in all of this? Where is sovereign God in the face of all the suffering in our world at the moment? Those starving children of Yemen, the millions affected by COVID illness and death around the world, those we know and love and pray for. And we all have those God, it's not fair moments, and it's okay to bring those to God, to tell God how it is and how it feels, and to know that God weeps with us, just as we weep with those who weep. So what is Jesus' response to this poor man? Well, before Jesus said anything, he stretched out his hand and touched him. That was the most shocking thing. Jesus answered the man's risk-taking with his own. I think, he's, yes, he's touching him there in that uh, old picture. He touched him, so Jesus instantly becomes unclean himself. Then and only then does he say the words, I do choose, be made clean. What powerful words those were, I do choose. I choose for you and for your good. So just as Jesus knows himself to be the chosen one of God, so now he passes on that choice. God chooses you to be healed. God chooses you to be made clean. I don't know which would have been more healing to that man, Jesus' touch or his words. Either way, he's healed. And Mark uses his favorite word about it immediately. 
it's always Mark's favourite word, immediately he is healed. He's physically healed, but also in society's terms, he is clean. And that is why Jesus seems to treat him a bit sternly, sending him off to show himself to the priest and to make the offering required by the law of Moses for his cleansing. Apparently, he needed to sacrifice some lambs and bring flour mixed with oil. So what is Jesus doing here? Doesn't it seem a bit petty to be requiring all that when this man is dancing around rejoicing at being healed? Well, Jesus is doing a couple of things. First of all, he's sending the man to follow the ritual practices required under the law, but by doing that, he's making sure that that man will now be accepted back into society. He will have the official warrant of fitness, if you like. But also, perhaps, maybe he's pushing the man a bit, not wanting him just to take for granted this healing, if, if he ever could, of course he couldn't, but to give him the opportunity to make a response himself, that there be a spiritual dimension to this healing and not just a physical one. And note Jesus also says, do this as a testimony to them, a testimony to the priests. He's constantly reaching out to those at the margins, yes, but also to those who thought they were right at the centre. A testimony to them. Well, we know from the end of the story that Jesus' plea to the healed man falls completely on deaf ears, and we can't blame him for that. He just cannot help himself telling the world that he has been healed. And the words Mark uses are actually preaching words. The man proclaimed this and spread the word, the logos. He became an instant preacher of the good news he'd found in Jesus. And of course, that backfires, if you like, on Jesus. He can no longer go anywhere in public, but the people still flock to him. And we'll hear more about that as it goes on. I, I love this little story, and others like it, of Jesus healing those with leprosy. As, as one who's lived myself with a pretty severe version of the common skin disease psoriasis since I was about 12 or 13, so it's about 47 years now, I know full well that had I lived in Jesus' time, I would have been living together with those who had leprosy. All skin diseases were lumped together, pretty much. People didn't, weren't able to differentiate. And I can still recall what it was like as a teenager at high school, not wanting to go swimming at PE because my skin was so bad and I didn't want to be seen wearing togs, and spending the whole summer uh, term with the not-swimming group. It was hot. Constant, this was in Nelson. Constantly wearing long sleeves and trousers, however hot the temperature got. And I guess over the decades I've got used to it and braver about letting my skin be on show and less rude to those who've kindly offered me every home remedy under the sun. From the inside of banana skins, did you know it, uh, to the ointment they put on cow udders. That was, that was a West Coaster who offered me that. Uh, and yes, I've had plenty of prayers for healing and I am grateful for those. But I'm also hugely grateful for the expertise of dermatologists and expensive immunosuppressant drugs that Pharmac graciously fund for me and others like me. We all bear wounds of various kinds, physical, mental, emotional. And I sometimes say that I wear my wounds close to the surface. 
but I'm well aware of the hidden, unseen wounds that we all carry for ourselves or those that we love. So I guess I feel that power of Jesus touching the man with leprosy before he even spoke to him, that power of healing touch. And I reflect on that sometimes as we live in what has become a very touch-averse world through COVID, but also because of the sad abuses of trust that have been perpetrated through inappropriate touch. And we as clergy attend courses on professional ethics and practice. We talk about power imbalances and relationships, about keeping appropriate boundaries, about good self-care, as I know many of you do in your work context or in childcare as volunteers too. And we have lively discussions in those contexts about what is healthy touch, about hugging, about the peace, about what might it mean for Christians to offer negotiated, public, appropriate, safe, healthy touch. And each one of those words is important. I'm not particularly touchy-feely myself, and of course we all have different personalities and different life and family and cultural experiences, and we need to honour those and respect those in each other. I found this quote from uh, Henri Nouwen, who spent a considerable part of his life living in a lush community, a, a community living together of those of all abilities and disabilities together. And he said this, Touch speaks the wordless words of love. We receive so much when we are babies and so little when we are adults. Still, in friendship, touch often gives more life than words. A friend's hand stroking our back, a friend's arm resting gently on our shoulder, a friend's fingers wiping our tears away, a friend's lips kissing our forehead. Those are true consolation. And those moments of touch are truly sacred. They restore, they reconcile, they reassure, they forgive, they heal. Everyone who touched Jesus and everyone whom Jesus touched was healed. God's love and power went out from him. So when a friend touches us with free, non-possessive love, it is God's incarnate love that touches us. God's power that heals us. Now, Henri Nouwen wrote those words in 1996, and I'm wondering if they can still be said safely today. I hope so, but I'm very aware that this is holy ground with no easy answers. But I'm still challenged by our gospel today that Jesus took the risk of reaching out and touching the one with leprosy and said, I do choose. And I long that we might be a safe community where as wounded healers together in Henri Nouwen's lovely uh, term, we can reach out with the love of Christ publicly and safely and healthily in a way that makes for our healing as individuals and as the body of Christ. One way we hope to do that more this year is, is by praying for one another. Uh, we offer prayer ministry within each service, always two people and uh, there in our prayer room. But also this year we've um, got from mainly music, actually, from the mainly music organisation. So little prayer pads, here they are, and there's some up the back if you'd like one. And at the top, there's, there's four different things. This one says, Kia ora, can you please pray? Hey there, 
I'd love you to pray for me. Tenakoto, can you pray for me? And the last one, Fano, I need prayer support. And we're encouraging you to take one of those to have at home, perhaps for your family or your whana, or for those of us who live alone, perhaps to commit to share with others. And um, to use that as a way of asking for prayer within our families when we've got, or perhaps with our children, to write things that we want prayer for today, urgently, and pop it on the fridge, perhaps, or on the bathroom mirror or wherever we go past. And we'd also like to do that as a congregation. If there's something you want prayer for, we're going to have a box at the back for you to pop in a prayer. And if you'd like to offer to pray for someone, to take a prayer and take it home. Obviously, we um, just first names, keep it um, so that we can share things publicly. Uh, not in great detail, but just that's enough. God knows the needs. Uh, so if you'd like a little, little prayer prompt booklet, they're welcome for you today as we pray for one another, pray as community, pray as wounded healers together, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Steve's going to